The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and said, For we had the sentence of death within ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God that raiseth the dead. It's so easy to trust in ourselves. We have experiences daily that put us to the test. Where is truly our trust? I need to be reminded about that on a regular basis. Not to trust in my heart, not to trust in my own abilities, but I need to trust in the Lord continuously, daily. Appreciate the good reminder of that this morning that Brother Tim has brought to our attention. I'd like to speak to you this morning from the book of 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter, the fifth chapter. There's five chapters in 1 Peter, so we're looking at the last chapter. And this chapter has appealed to me over the years from the standpoint that the Apostle Peter's experiences with the Lord Jesus Christ are kind of hidden in this chapter. As you read this chapter and study it, if you are familiar with the life of Peter, you will see some of the things that Peter says is a result of the experiences that Peter had with Christ. Now, Peter was one of the 12 apostles, of course. Jesus chose 12. They're all named for us, but Peter is one of those 12 that we have perhaps more information on than anyone else. Peter is the most well-known of all the apostles. The apostle Peter uh, had witnessed many miracles. Sometimes he was the beneficiary of the miracle himself, just him and the Lord. And there are times in which the apostle Peter was among a group of people that benefited from a miracle. And sometimes he was simply a witness to a miracle that the Lord Jesus Christ had performed. So we, we find that the Lord is going to use the Apostle Peter to write two letters. And it's very important that you understand who these letters are being written to. So you go to chapter 1, verse 1. Peter identifies himself as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, to the strangers that were scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia. Here's several geographical areas uh, that where people live. Uh, that he refers to as strangers. Uh, they were strangers in two ways. First of all, this is not where they grew up. They were scattered. This is not where their roots were. They were scattered because of persecution. So he says to the strangers, scouts out Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia. Then he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God through sanctification of the Spirit and obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. He gives further identification to these people he's writing to as the elect of God. Now, one of the themes in the Apostle Peter's writings, both epistles, but especially here in 1 Peter, is the theme of sufferings. He will mention the sufferings of Christ at least six times. The sufferings of Christ are mentioned in all five chapters of 1 Peter. But he also brings to light the fact that if we are disciples of Christ, if we are committed dedicated followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Christ suffered in this life, we can expect to suffer as well. So Peter had many, many experiences that we read about in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Also, Peter had uh, experiences with the Lord uh, after the Lord's ascension back to glory, as we read in the book of Acts. In fact, the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts is going to pretty much highlight the Apostle Peter's life and his ministry. Paul is brought to our attention uh, in chapter 9, as Saul of Tarsus, but Paul's life and ministry is pretty much highlighted from chapter 13 to the end of the book. First 12 chapters devoted primarily to Peter. So Peter begins this fifth chapter, and I want you to notice here, he doesn't address those specifically as, 
that he's, that he's pinpointing this chapter to uh, from the standpoint of him being an apostle. He speaks about being an elder. Notice what it says in verse 1. The elders which are among you, he's singling them out. I exhort you, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. The apostle Peter indeed was an apostle, but he was an elder. Now the word elder has reference, generally speaking, you know, oftentimes to the older mature person, especially in the Old Testament, those who were the leaders of their families, those who were leaders of the tribes, the older ones were referred to as elders. But in the New Testament, that word oftentimes has reference to the ministry in the New Testament. In the book of 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul will write to Timothy and admonish him, you might say, exhort him, teach him, that he and no one else should receive an accusation against an elder except for two or three witnesses. Now, an elder, a minister of the gospel, he's always out front. He's always an easy target for criticism. You know, uh, he's going to speak the most. He's going to talk the most. He's going to uh, just be out front. So he's subject to more criticism sometimes than other people. But he says, if someone starts to talk to you about an elder in a negative way to make an accusation, you be sure you stop until you get two or three witnesses. So that's good instruction. It was then, it is today. But then a couple of verses later, it says, let the elder that ruleth well be counted worthy of double honor. So the minister, the elder, is under the observation of the congregation, under the observation of the church. And some ministers uh, labor well and, and some don't. But he that laboreth in word and in doctrine is worthy of double honor. In the book of Titus chapter 1, Paul will tell Titus, to go to a place called Crete, where he will ordain elders in every city. Now, he gives qualifications there in Titus chapter 1. The ones they would ordain had to be qualified. You read of the qualification of the ministry in 1 Timothy chapter 3, in the opening verses. And there's 16 of them, followed by 13 qualifications for deacons. These two offices in the New Testament church, the office of the minister and the deacon, or not to be filled with just in and everybody. When those times come that that office needs to have someone put into it, there are qualifications that are to be looked at and be sure that individual is qualified before he's ever set aside and fills that office. I've been around long enough to witness a mistake the church has made oftentimes in both these cases here, and the church will always have to suffer for it. Those qualifications are there for a reason. There's at least seven references in the New Testament to elder when it does not have reference necessarily to an older person, but rather to that person that is mature and has met those qualifications being called of God to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we're going to find where Peter is going to speak to the elders which are among you. He says, I'm also an elder. There's three things here. See, Peter puts himself on the same level of these elders here. Yes, he was an apostle, but he doesn't bring that up right here. He's on the same level that they are. He says, now, I'm also a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, this is the sixth time that Peter makes reference to the sufferings of Christ. I've already mentioned to you. He makes reference to the sufferings of Christ in chapter 1, 2, 3, twice in 4, and now here in 5. He says, I was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Uh, he's not just writing about what he heard about the sufferings of Christ. 
he's writing about his experience with Christ and he was a witness of the sufferings of our Savior. Now, it'd be beneficial for you, we don't have time this morning, it'd be beneficial to you to go back and read each reference to the sufferings of Christ and see what's connected to it. It'd be very beneficial for you to do that for a study. All right, so he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. When did he do this? Well, for a number of times during his three years of walking with Christ, but in the Garden of Gethsemane, for example. You know, Peter was there when the soldiers came to get Christ, and Peter, in his eagerness, his zeal, he pulls out a sword and cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. The Lord Jesus Christ rebuked Peter for that, told him to put up his sword. He said, thank you not that I could not call right now my father. And he sent me 12 legions of angels at 72,000. They're armed. They're ready. All they're waiting for is a green light from God. If God gave it to them, they'd be right here in an instant and take care of this wild bunch. But he put the ear back on the uh, side of the head of the servant of the high priest, showing his power and also his compassion for that individual. And he probably saved the apostle Peter's life in so doing. He witnessed the sufferings of Christ. He followed Christ to a distance. He saw Christ there in Pilate's judgment hall. He heard the ridicule, the criticism. He witnessed some of the sufferings that uh, his Savior experienced. And from a distance and from far off, we find where Peter saw the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ and the sufferings of him. He says, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He says, I'm also a partaker of his glory. That reminds me of Peter's experience on the mountain of transfiguration. Remember when Peter went to the top of the mountain uh, with James and John? Christ took them. Peter, James, and John were three of the twelve. You might call them the inner circle. And Christ took them to special places for special experiences. The other nine didn't witness, but he takes them three with him on top of the mountain of transfiguration, where on either side of him we find appearing Moses on one side and Elijah on the other. These men had been dead for hundreds and hundreds of years, but they appeared there, and Peter and them were able to recognize who they were. That took the supernatural intervention of God to do so. It's one of the verses, I believe, that established pretty clearly that in the resurrection, uh, there will be identity in the resurrection. You'll be able to recognize people, I believe, the Lord's people in the resurrection that you've known here in this life. Uh, you say, well, how in the world could we do that? Well, it, the same supernatural intervention that God gave to Peter, James, and John on that occasion will certainly still be available then, right? There were no pictures, no photographs, no uh, even physical descriptions in the scripture concerning Moses and Elijah uh, that would uh, be able to give them the ability to identify these men. So he took him up there. What happened up there? Christ was transfigured before uh, Moses and Elijah, and the subject matter was the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were discussing his decease. They saw the Lord transfigured right there. They saw glory come upon the Savior. And so we find the Apostle Peter says, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and I'm a partaker of his glory. Now he says, I'm an elder, a witness, and a partaker of the glory. He then instructs these elders... Uh, as they went about their ministry of three things they were not to be and three things that they were. He says, now you are to take on this responsibility not by constraint, but willingly. This is not something you feel like that you're just grudgingly having to do. This is something you should be willing to do, something you should enjoy doing. The call that God gives a man when he puts a burden in his heart and calls him to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, I believe he gives him a willing and loving spirit to go along with that. And so it's not to be viewed as a job. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's plenty of work involved in it. Uh, we read in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 11, 
For Paul says Christ led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the work of the ministry. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 3 where Paul says, If any man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. He tells Timothy to study, show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so with the man of God is blessed to bring forth an edifying message to the house of God. There had to be a lot of work for a few days prior to that to be able to get that together and bring it to the Lord's people, you see. But it's a joyful type of work. Now in contrast to that, as I was raised up on a tobacco farm and I had to go out in the fields uh, every day, I did that by constraint. <laughs> I did not do that willingly. Oh, I, oh, I was made willing. <laughs> <laughs> I was made willing, uh, but it wasn't something I was enjoy doing. Uh, I went back out of constraint, you see. <laughs> I didn't enjoy those days going down those fields of tobacco and sucking those plants and topping them out and this, that, and the other. Uh, I, I didn't really enjoy doing that. But he says, not by constraint, but willingly. Not for filthy lucre's sake, but of a ready mind. A man should not enter into this type of uh, effort and work and labor from the standpoint of what he thinks he's going to receive out of it, financial gain or whatever. And it is certainly a biblical and historical fact that the ministry of the Lord's church, I'm talking about the Lord's true church here in this world, the ministry has been associated with it ever since the Lord established it 2,000 years ago, in general, have lived poor lives. In general, they uh, lived in poverty, basically. Uh, they were given very little. Of course, a lot of times they were ministering to people who had very little to give, but they did the best they could. But he says, you're not in this thing for filthy lucre's sake, but of a, sound, but, but, uh, of a ready mind. Now, when you read the qualification of the minister in 1 Timothy chapter 3, you'll find the expression, not for filthy lucre's sake. You find it in Titus chapter 1, not for filthy lucre's sake. You see, ministers are human like everybody else. And so the danger of things like this can be uh, right there in front of them. So uh, we find where Peter makes it very clear. Now, the Apostle Peter, uh, I think, had a, probably a pretty good life going for him when he was a fisherman. Him and his, his brother, Andrew, were in partnership with James and John. Uh, James and John's dad was Zebedee. He owned the fishing uh, operation, you might say. And they were fishing the Sea of Galilee. That was a, a pretty... Uh, profitable profession back in that day to, to a great degree but the Lord called him away from that he said come follow me and I'll make you become a fisherman of men and so by faith and trusting in the Lord they departed that profession to go fish for men rather than for the fish in the sea of Galilee he says not for filthy lucre's sake but of a ready mind uh, this is something you do willingly and you have a ready mind to do it and, uh, you know, you'd be instant in season and out of season. Uh, you'd be ready to go of a ready mind. Now, in Romans chapter 1, verse 15, the Apostle Paul writing here, he said, For I am now ready to preach the gospel with you at Rome also. When the church gathers together, they have every reason in the world to expect the minister going to speak to them to be ready to preach. They got every reason, every expectation. But, to, you know, for that minister is going to stand before them that he's ready He's not only ready from the standpoint of getting up and getting ready and getting dressed and getting ready that way, but he's ready to preach because he's been trying to get ready throughout the week and studying the scriptures and the word of God. But the minister also has every right in the world to expect a ready congregation. 
He's got every reason in the world to expect the people that are ready to hear the gospel, people who made preparations to hear the gospel, people who didn't watch the late movie and go to bed at 2 o'clock in the morning and uh, they're sleeping, can't hardly keep their eyes open, or people who, who've come here and they haven't uh, prayed, and they haven't, uh, you know, focused on the service for today. Uh, if you want to get the most out of the preaching of the gospel, uh, you've got to make preparations also. The congregation's got to be ready to worship. they got to be ready to hear. they got to be ready to receive. they got to be ready. You know, they can't uh, be thinking about a thousand other things. Uh, if I'm going to try to preach this morning and preach any time and going to be able to do a, a, a you know, uh, a job that's uh, acceptable in the sight of God and hopefully in your sight, I can't be thinking about a thousand other things while I'm trying to preach the gospel i got to focus on what I'm trying to preach, and you got to focus on what I am trying to preach to you, see. So you want a ready preacher, preacher wants a ready congregation. <laughs> we all, we got to be ready, right? So he says, not as being lords over God's heritage, but in samples to the flock. That simply means that the minister realizes that he can't drive the Lord's people. He's got to lead the Lord's people. He's not to be a dictator. He's not trying to rule over them. But he's trying to be an example to the flock. So the minister of the gospel, whatever he preaches, he's got to be an example. What he preaches, his, his preaching will not be effective. If he's going to preach for the Lord's people to be at the house of the Lord on time and be in their pews ready to go at 1030, he can't show up at 1040. Can't show up at 1050. If he's going to preach to the Lord's people about their responsibility and the joy of doing it, of laying aside the first day of the week, so to speak, again, as God has prospered you to find to support the church, then he's got to be an example of that. Whatever the preacher preaches for the congregation, he's got, he's got to be an example of what he's trying to preach, or it's just going to fall on deaf ears, you see. Now, I tell you, that, that puts a tremendous weight and, and burden upon the minister of the gospel. That's a, a sobering thought. That's a sobering thing, that whatever I say or other man says, uh, you know, uh, you, got to, you can't say it if you're not going to mean it, and you've got to be an example of what's going on. So we know there's three things they're not to be, and three things they are to be. Not by constraint, but willingly. Not for fit to lucasate, but of a ready mind. Not being Lord of a God's heritage, but being an insample of the flock. Now, this between an insample and an example, and there is a difference. An insample is an example, but an insample is one that comes with great impression and great force and great impact. It stands out. That's what an insample is. So he's addressing the elders which were among them. He says, when the chief shepherd shall appear, he shall receive a crown of glory. Now I know the day is coming when the chief shepherd, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, there's only one chief shepherd. <laughs> and it's not me. It's not any other minister. We're under shepherds to the flock. Now, let me back up just for a moment because Peter here says, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. We notice two things here. Feed the flock of God which is among you. The master of the gospel, he's a sheep like everybody else. I hope I am anyway. <laughs> he's a sheep like everybody else is. All right, take, uh, feed the flock of God which is among you. You're among good people, among the family of God. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. He's to be an overseer. In Acts 20 and 28, Paul addresses elders at Ephesus. He's speaking to them. And he tells them, he says, feed the church of God. Feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. 
It says, taking the oversight there. The Holy Ghost that made you overseer is what I want. Feeding the flock of God, which the Holy Ghost has made you the overseer. And the word overseer there literally means a superintendent. The flock, the church doesn't belong to the under-shepherd. It doesn't belong to the minister. The flock belongs to God. It's his people, his flock, his sheep. Psalms 100 tells us, Know ye the Lord, that he is God. It says, we have, not we who have made ourselves, but we are the sheep of God's pastor and the people of his house. We're sheep and the pastor of God. So the under-shepherd is to feed what? The flock of God. This terminology is important. God compares his people to sheep, Old Testament and New Testament, for a reason. When you study sheep, you're going to learn a lot about God's people. When you study God's people, you're going to learn a lot about sheep. <laughs> That's the analogy that goes along with it, you see. Now, we find in the book of Jeremiah 3 and 15 where he says, I will give thee pastors which shall feed my people with knowledge and understanding. That's sheep food right there. Knowledge and understanding, the word of God is sheep food. And the word pastor literally means shepherd. That's what it means. Now, when you read Psalm 23, do you visualize a shepherd and sheep there? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures, lead me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. Uh, so forth and so on down through that, that 23rd Psalm. Now, of course, he's talking about the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ there. But that's the duty and responsibility of the under-shepherd. He's to feed the flock of God, which is among, that he's among, taking the oversight thereof. Now, a true shepherd, when you study, I've never had any sheep, but I've studied sheep. I've studied books on sheep. I've studied books on shepherds. I've studied books on the relationship of shepherds and sheep. Never owned them, but I've studied them. But the most information I get about a shepherd and sheep is found right in the Bible. I don't have to go to outside sources. I don't have to go to outside books. I just need to study what the Word of God teaches. In the 53rd division or chapter of Isaiah, what does he say about sheep? And we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Sheep are prone to stray away from the care of the shepherd. That's always a disaster. That's always a, a terrible decision on the part of a sheep to stray away from the care of the shepherd because a shepherd truly cares for sheep in an different way that a rancher would care for cattle. Shepherd has an intimate relationship with sheep. He knows them by name. He knows how many is in the flock. He goes before them to prepare the way. He goes before them to search out the safest routes. He goes before them to find the clearest water to drink and the greenest grass to, to graze. When they come in at night, he's going to count every one of them and be sure they're all there. See, y'all are not always here. <laughs> I know. I guarantee you, I go home today and I tell you to the person how many was here, who they were, and who's not here. I do it, I'll do it all the time. When he brings them in at night, he examines them. Some may be bruised. They may have fallen, hurt themselves on a rock, whatever. He's going to apply some ointment. There are those who got in the cuckaburs and the briars and everything else. He's got to get that out of the wool. He loves them to the point he spends extra time. After they come in to rest, he spends extra time with them to do all of that, you see. So when he says, take, uh, when he says feed the flock of God which is among you, it's in keeping what the scripture teaches sheep and shepherd all the way through the Bible. They say, when the chief shepherd shall appear, yes, the Lord's coming again. Uh, I like to go to uh, Hebrews 9, 24 through 28. 
and you find three appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 26, he says, Now once an end of the world hath Christ appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice himself. The word world means age there. Obviously, he's talking about something that happened 2,000 years ago. A world ended 2,000 years ago, and that was the Jewish world. The Jewish economy, the Jewish world of worship and service. It came to an end 2,000 years ago when Christ appeared. Then he says, Unto them that look for him shall he appear without sin unto salvation. I'm looking for him. I think you are too. I hope you are. And if you are, he will appear one day without sin unto salvation. But in verse 24, he says, Now Christ is not, uh, you know, uh, in, the, in the places, the figures that are made with hands. He says, but now he's appeared in heaven now. He's in heaven now to appear in the presence of God for you. Right now, Christ appeared 2,000 years ago. He's appearing in heaven now as our intercessor, and he's going to appear at the end of time when he comes to gather his children and take them home. But I think the appearing is under consideration here is a timely thing. When the ministers are doing this as a ready mind, when they're doing it willingly, of a ready mind, as an example to the flock of God, and the Lord comes. Whenever we come to God's house, I come expecting to meet with the Lord. As I've said before, it's his house. Why wouldn't he be here? Uh, if we can feel the presence of the Lord, the manifest presence of the Lord, uh, there's just something real special about that, very special about that. Now, in the book of John, chapter 14, verse 23, the Lord Jesus Christ said, He that loveth me will keep my word. Now, notice this. You love the Lord, you prove that by keeping his word. If a man love me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come and take up our abode with him. That's pretty strong, isn't it? That's pretty special. That the Father and the Son will come and take up his abode with the individual that loves the Lord and keeps his word. And a church that loves the Lord, loves his word, keeps his word, the Lord has promised he and the Father will come and take up their abode with us. The last church of the seven churches of age, the church at Laodicea, we find where the Lord Jesus Christ is making a personal examination of each and every one of these churches. And he charges this church with being lukewarm. He says, you're not hot and you're not cold. You're lukewarm, and I would you're either hot or cold, one of the two. You know, somebody hot is going to be active. You're going to try to find something to cool them off with. If they're cold, they're going to, they're going to try to do something to get warm, right? But the lukewarm person, he's just going to sit there and yawn and go to sleep. And who likes lukewarm coffee? Who likes lukewarm tea? You may, I don't. I want it either cold or hot. Cold tea, hot coffee. I'm not into this iced coffee thing, okay? Uh, you know, I just seem like a, a contradiction, iced coffee. Uh, but if you like it, that's fine. But I doubt you who like iced coffee will like lukewarm coffee. Those who like hot coffee like lukewarm coffee, right? The Lord doesn't like lukewarm disciples. He doesn't. He said, I will spew you out of my mouth. But notice what he says coming down. He says, now, if I, if it, it says if, if, if I uh, come to the door and knock, if any man hear my voice, he said, open the door, I'll do something. I will come in with him and sup with him. That verse is misused, abused, and misinterpreted uh, by most everybody in the world. Notice he's writing to a church. He's knocking the door of a church. Who's in the church? Born-again people who made a profession of faith. 
He's knocking on the door. This is a condition right here. Salvation eternally is not based on conditions, but this is. He's knocking on the door. If he may hear my voice and open the door, I'll do what? I'll come in and sup with him. Sup, S-U-P, is short for supper. He didn't say, I'll come in and dine here. He said, I'll come in and sup. That's fellowship. That's fellowship. So he said, I will come to the point. He said, when the chief shepherd shall appear, he shall receive a crown of glory. Now, next he's going to shift over to the subject of being submissive. He says the elder, the younger should submit themselves to the older, and we all should submit ourselves one into another. He said we should be clothed with humility. Now notice he tells you here to submit and be clothed. And then humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. He's going to get into the importance of humility and pride. Somebody said, Brother Lawrence, this thing about humility, uh, I, I've been reading some self-help books, and uh, I just don't think you should demean yourself. I don't think you should think little of yourself. Well, that's not what humility is. Humility is not thinking little of yourself. Humility is simply not thinking anything of yourself. That's what humility is. You don't think of self. You're thinking about somebody else. You think about other people, you see. That's what true humility is all about. Now, God resisted the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. Subject of pride is uh, throughout the word of God. Pride is a sin that God hates, Proverbs 6.16. There are six things the Lord hates, and the first one of those is a proud look. One of the things that disqualify a, a minister of the gospel is that uh, he be lifted up with pride. You know, you read those in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He's not to be a novice, lest he lift with pride. When a minister's a novice, when he's just starting out, he feels real blessed. Nobody comes around and pats him on the back and encourages him. Next thing you know, he feels a little proud. It's real easy to do that. Pride. First John 2, in verse 18, says, What's in the world but the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life? God resisted the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And the third thing is to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Not just the hand of God, but the mighty hand of God. Boy, it'd be, it'd be tempting to run off here on this rabbit trail, but we will not, Lord willing. It'd be, it'd be tempting to. <laughs> the mighty hand of God, the omnipotent hand of God. I thought of a couple examples about that this morning. I thought about Moses who spent 40 years in the back of the desert. You know what he was doing? He was humbling himself in the mighty hand of God. And in God's own time, God raised him up, called him, sent him back to Egypt, bring his people out of there. In the case of Joseph... When Joseph went down to Egypt, we find where Joseph in the house of Potiphar to begin with. And then he goes into prison. He will spend around 13 years in prison for something he was not guilty of. But at the right time, God exalted him and brought him out of there to where he was second man under Pharaoh. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and in due time, he'll exalt you. Here the apostle Peter is remembering the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ said, he that is exalted shall be abased, his abased shall be exalted. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. All right? We all have some cares, don't we? We all have some cares. And what do you tell us to do it? Casting all your care, not some of it, not piecemeal it out. Casting all your care upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. That's why. If anybody ever knew what having care uh, placed upon them of the Lord was, it was the apostle Peter. 
The Apostle Peter in his early life watched the Lord heal his mother-in-law of a fever and sickness. He watched him do that. The Apostle Peter was in that ship when the Lord was awakened from sleep, that great storm, and he calmed the storm. He was in that ship when the Lord come walking on water and the Apostle Peter got out of the ship and started walking on water. The Apostle Peter, Luke chapter 5, witnessed a great catch of fish, a great multitude of fish. When the Lord told them to cast, go out into the deep and cast your nets, he saw what happened. They filled those nets up to the point those nets, those nets broke. And then I find where the Lord sent him out to catch one fish. Now let me just ask you a question this morning. Let's say, suppose you've been fishing for a couple of days and you come in and say, well, how did you do? And you know, well, the first day, we caught so many fish. We could, it was unbelievable how many fish we caught that day. Well, what did you do on the second day? We caught one. Well, I guess you felt a lot more blessed on the first day. Huh? No, not necessarily because the day I caught one, he happened to have a corn in his mouth. And that corn had such great value, I was able to go down and pay my taxes to the IRS. So catching one fish <laughs> was just miraculous catching the multitude of fish, wasn't it? And the Lord shared his care, shared his care, showed his care. In Acts chapter 12, the apostle Peter's in prison. That morning, the Lord got him out. He didn't have to exchange anybody either. He just got him out. He just opened up the prison doors and the shackles fell from his hands. The shackles fell from his feet. And he come walking out of that prison because the Lord got him out. If there's anybody ever in this life who understood my experience, the care of the Lord, it was the apostle Peter. And Peter says, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. He you by experience the care of the Lord, you see. Now some people, see when he says casting all your care, he means past, present, and future. You got some people who have cares in the past and they're determined to take it all the way to the future. They're determined to do it. When Peter says casting all your care, if you had care in the past that's been bothering you, casting from the Lord. You got present care, casting on the Lord. In the future, whatever care you got, casting from the Lord. Why? Because he cares for you. Then he says, be vigilant, be sober, for your adversary the devil, walking about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You know why we have a lot of care in this world? Because we got a great enemy in the devil. We got a great adversary in the devil, like a roaring lion, seeking whom he, can, seeking whom he uh, will devour. He's always seeking somebody to devour. And it started way back there in the Garden of Eden with a woman named Eve. That's where it all started. Genesis 3, 1 says the serpent was more subtle, S-U-B-T-I-L, which means crafty and clever than any other beast. He's a clever one. He's a crafty one. We have an adversary, and he's real. A lot of people, you know, make jokes about the devil. I wouldn't do that too often. Well, the devil made me do it and get a ha-ha and a big laugh out of it. The truth of the matter is he probably did. He was prior there to influence you, to make some decision you shouldn't have made, to say something you shouldn't have said, to do something you shouldn't have done. He's our adversary, and we're to take him seriously. Be vigilant and be sober. Sober is a mean to think clearly. Vigilant means to be alert. Think clearly, be alert, recognize the devil is a real being, and he's like a roaring lion, and you're in his sights. He wants to devour you. He's a great deceiver. He's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere present, nowhere absent, but it seems like he is because he's got a multitude of demons on his, on his side. He's got a multitude of demons in his army, so to speak, and they're worldwide. You go to the book of uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, and you'll find where the devil there is described as Satan, the devil, the prophet, and the, and the beast. 
That's four things that describes him. He says, who deceiveth the whole world. He's a deceiver. He deceived Eve. Paul mentions that when he writes to Timothy. He says, Adam was first born and then Eve. And Eve, uh, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. He deceived her there in that garden. He pointed that that tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he says, she said, the Lord said, the day we eat of it, we'll die. He said, oh, you won't die. And she looked at that tree. She saw the fruit on it was pleasant to the eyes, good for food, and able to make you wise. And her pride came into her, and she ate of the fruit and gave it to her husband. And here's where we are today. <laughs> here's where we are today. Because of that deceiver, the devil himself, he's an impersonator. The Lord in John 8, 44 called him a liar and called him a murderer. You have an adversary in the devil like a roaring lion and he's walking about seeking whom he can devour. He appeared as a serpent, my friends, in Genesis in the Garden of Eden, but he's a roaring lion today. A roaring lion. Now let me just ask you something. If, you're, if you was taking a walk through the woods, a hike through the woods, and a local zoo was nearby and a lion got escaped and got out of that, at that zoo and he's in the same woods with you but you don't know it until he roars. And when he roars, he's not very far away. I'd say that scared the daylights out of me. I'd, scare, I'd say that scared me more than half to death. I think I'd be 99% dead. Right? If I heard the roaring of a lion... Well, that's exactly how we ought to feel toward the devil as our adversary. He's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he is loose. And he walks up to and fro throughout the whole earth. You know, read about him over there in Job. But thank God I'll tell you this. While we have an adversary in the devil, we have an advocate in the Lord Jesus Christ who's greater than the devil is. But nevertheless, Peter says, now, why did Peter tell us that? Remember that experience in Luke chapter 22 when the Lord comes to the apostle Peter and he says, Peter, he says, Satan had desired to have thee to sift thee as wheat, but I have prayed for thee that thy fate fail not. Peter was in the, in the eyesight, you know, of, of Satan. I mean, he had his sights right on him, didn't he? And he says, Satan had desired to have you, Peter, personally you, Peter, sift you as wheat. Now, when you sift something, you shake it and you try to separate the good from the bad and you're shaking. And I'm telling you, the devil got hold of Peter and shook him to the point he denied the Lord Jesus Christ three times. But the Lord said, I prayed for thee. Now, I know the Lord prays for us, but just to have the Lord say that to you, wouldn't that, wonder what that would mean to you. Wonder what that meant to Peter. Peter got the bad news. Satan desired to sift thee as wheat. Desiring to have thee to sift thee as wheat. But I've prayed for thee, Peter, that your faith fail not. And I've just got to believe if Jesus prayed, his faith didn't fail. His faith didn't fail. Oh, he denied the Lord three times, all right. But I'm telling you, the Lord, he, he was recovered by the grace of the Lord. Then he says, for the God of all grace. Aren't you glad that God's the God of all grace? In chapter 4, verse 19, he mentions the manifold grace of God. Now, the word manifold means varied. It means uh, multitudes, you know. I'm telling you, God is the author of saving grace. God's the author of living grace. And thank God, God's the author of dying grace. <laughs> 
You know, it's been uh, my experience and not mine, but others down through the years. There will be people who are just not quite ready to accept the grace of God like we preach it. We preach grace, we preach grace. We preach the grace of the unmerited favor of God bestowed upon uh, sinners, unworthy sinners, broken sinners, vile sinners, corrupt sinners. His grace is so great, it can save a thief on the cross. His grace is so great, he can save a man in his mother's womb. His grace is so great, he can save a Saul of Tarsus, a breathing dragon, my friends, going to persecute God's people. That's how great God's grace is. Some people say, well, I'm not so sure about that. When it comes time to die, uh, they kind of got a different attitude. When it comes time to draw that last breath, they start thinking about that great grace. I can't tell you how many times old Baptist preachers have been called to preach funerals of people who didn't like his living grace but loved his dying grace. And when somebody to speak over them that believed in the grace of God. The God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory. When God calls you out of state of death and sin to a state of life in Jesus Christ, you know what he calls you? He calls you into his eternal glory. That means you're going to be glorified one day. That means that you're going to experience the glory of God some sweet day when you draw your last breath. Why? Because God has called you unto his eternal glory. He didn't call at you. <laughs> he didn't uh, make a failed call. We believe in the effectual call of God. That when God calls a, a person indeed is raised from that state of death and sin by nature to a state of life in Christ, my friends, by the grace of God, the God of all grace, who's called you unto his eternal glory. Peter knew all about that. When you read this fifth chapter, you can just see so many of the experiences that Peter had with the Lord. He said, after you have suffered for a while, it shall make you perfect. Settle you establish you. You got, you got three S's right here. After you've suffered, well, actually you've got four S's. Notice what it says here. After you've suffered for a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. That's what the Lord does. That's what sufferings will do sometimes for us. Draw us closer to the Lord. He says, after you've suffered a while, make you perfect, establish you. That means to stabilize you. That means to uh, get you, uh, again, again, stable wherever you might be. And then to strengthen you. That speaks for itself. And then to settle you. That word act literally means to tie together. It means to stand on a foundation, a solid foundation, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for the manifold grace of God. I'm thankful he's a God of all grace. You know what grace leads to? Grace leads to glory. Read Psalms 84 verse 11. It says he's a shield. He's a shield. He's a son and a shield unto us. He giveth grace and glory. Grace always leads to glory. Your salvation by the grace of God will one day lead to glory. The day will come after you've suffered for a while. Yes, suffering is just for a while. And Paul speaks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, for our sufferings, this, you know, he speaks, actually in Romans, suffering in this present world shall not be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. He says, for the sufferings of this life, he says, we receive them with eternal glory, uh, eternal weight of glory. 
For we look not on things which are seen, but things which are not seen. The things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I'm thankful I got two sets of eyes. I got the set of eyes that sees the things in nature out here, but God gave me a set of eyes to see things that man's eyes cannot see. And I, I'll say this in closing this morning, but you know, I, I miss going to see Brother Bobby Buchanan, who passed away several years ago. Brother Bobby was blind. He couldn't see anything. But I'm telling you, he had one of the sharpest, keenest spiritual minds of anybody I've ever been around, even compared to preachers. And he'd get on his two-way radio. <laughs> he had a, he, they lived in just a modest little dwelling, him and his wife. And uh, he, he had a two-way radio in there, and, and he would manage to find his way in there and sit down. And he'd get on that two-way radio, and he'd talk to the truckers and friends and this, that, and the other. And he'd talk to them. Uh, you know what his subject matter was always was? It was about God. It was about the grace of God, the love of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He loved bragging on God. He loved talking about his belief in the election of God, the call of God, the resurrection, the second coming of Christ. I said, Brother Bobby, <laughs> I said, you got, you got eyesight that's so keen, so sharp. It's greater than 2020 when it comes to the things of God. And that's how he lived his life every single day. Uh, you know, people would finally just cut him off. <laughs> I just cut him off. They didn't want to hear about all that grace. Uh, you know, my friends, grace is like gravy. Don't give me potatoes without gravy. I tell you that right now. Don't give me works without grace. I, I know there's a place for works, but brother, you better top it off with the, the gravy of grace or the grace of gravy, however you want to call it. That, that just adds to it, does it not? <laughs> oh, my. Me and that clock, we have an ongoing battle. <laughs> 